0: I've thought a lot about whether or not to record this episode. I was afraid that if I made an episode about this travel destination, I would expose it. But then I started to remember when my travelers asked me, "Motek, what is the most beautiful place in the world in your eyes?" I answered them that this is the place, and for certain reasons, it is still remains unknown to most of the world, except for the crowd of Israelis and a few Europeans. most of the time we feel the whole world is already known to us thanks to the internet, and that there are no longer unique travel destinations that will surprise us and jolt our sense of adventure. Like in the movie Truman's World, where Truman, as a child, tells the teacher in front of the whole class that he wants to become an explorer. And she answers him, but there is a problem here because there is nothing more to explore. Well, Truman's teacher, You are wrong. There is a place where hospitality is the gem, the sea is crystal blue and is rich with marine life. It offers some of the best diving sports in the world and beautiful granite and sandstone mountains that make you wander into the wilderness. I've been there more than 20 times and have had the privilege of guiding retreats and hiking groups there. And if there is only one person who listens to this episode and decides to travel there, It means I did my share. So, welcome to episode number 8 of The Traveling Podcast. The podcast that inspires you to travel and learn about the world. And in today's episode, we are going to the Sinai Peninsula. So, What is the Sinai Peninsula, and where is it? The Sinai Peninsula is a part of Egypt today, and it is a vast desert land between Egypt to the west, and when I say Egypt, I mean the Nile River, Cairo, pyramids, all of what you think of Egypt. It borders the Mediterranean Sea to the north, and Israel and the Red Sea to the east, and on the map it looks like an upside-down triangle. The Sinai Peninsula is about 60,000 square kilometers, or 23,000 square miles. There are about 600,000 people living there, and the vast majority of them are Bedouins. What are Bedouins? Glad you asked. The word Bedouin comes from one of the Arabic words describing a desert, badwa, And they are basically Arab nomads, like in the movie Lawrence of Arabia. There are 26 different Bedouin tribes in Sinai, and it's traditional to split the Sinai into two central regions, the north of Sinai, and, you guessed it, the south of Sinai. In our episode, we will talk about the south of Sinai because that is where there is tourism, and the north of Sinai, well, that's where they have some security issues that most likely will make you unhappy to travel there. About two-thirds of the population lives in northern Sinai, and they work in agriculture and trade in places like Al-Arish, Ismailia, and Port Said. And in the south of Sinai, people work in tourism and in a particular type of agriculture, opium poppies and cannabis, which they usually grow in big springs in the middle of the mountains. The geology of Sinai is divided roughly into three main areas. The north is covered by lots of yellow sand that has been drifting from the Nile River and the Mediterranean Sea for millions of years. The peninsula's center is called the T Height and it's characterized by a lot of sedimentary rock like limestone, dolomite, and some chalk. And the south part, guys, the fun part, is full of beautiful granite and sandstone mountains. Sometimes some areas there look like Arizona or the Mojave Desert in California. The highest peak there is 2,626 meters above sea level, or 8,615 feet above sea level. The Sinai contributed to human history in two ways. The first is the story of the Exodus, and in a way you can say the birth of monotheism, where Moses received the first five books of the Old Testament, or the Torah in Hebrew and the development of the first known alphabet in human history, which is the ancestor of today's major alphabets in the Western world. Now, I must stop here and say something about what I have just said. It doesn't matter if you specifically believe in God and the Bible and all of that. It's a fact that this event, whether or not happened in reality, affected the course of human history. And today, billions of people From the Abrahamic faiths, believe in it. Even if you are a progressive hipster from New York with a purple hair, when you get injured, you will get treated at Mount Sinai Hospital. I hope that makes my point clear. Now, I can make a whole episode about the archaeological and historical research of the Exodus story of Sinai. Over the past hundreds of years, many scholars have suggested many potential sites for the true Mount of Sinai. One is even in Saudi Arabia of today and another is in the Negev Desert of Israel. But because we are focusing on Sinai as a travel destination, I will focus on the traditional site of mountain, which is Jabal Musa, and the sites and activities around there. The revelation of the first known alphabet is a unique story in itself and in order to understand who were the people living there at that time, we should go back in history. So the earliest known human activity in the post-prehistoric era in the Sinai desert comes from the Egyptians. Well, there were no civilizations in Sinai like they had in Egypt at that time. In other words, no pyramids in Sinai, folks. But due to its richness with deposits of copper and other precious stones, the ancient Egyptians built two main mining centers around the year 1800 BCE. Most likely, they used local slave populations that were semis from Canaan, since mining was a hazardous occupation at that time. Canaan is the Egyptian name for the land of Israel, which is how it also appears in the Bible. There were two main sites in Sinai at that time. One is in Israel today, and the other is in southwest Sinai, not far from an oil-rich region called Ator, and that is Serbit el Khadem. They found archaeological remains of mines in both sites, but more importantly, they found remains of local temples dedicated to the patron of the miners and also of love, the goddess Hathor. In Serbit el-Chadem, there are a lot of different monoliths with hieroglyphics the ancient Egyptian text. Around the year 1899, a famous British archaeologist named Flindris petrie guys, he's not the dish guy, that's someone else – he found a fascinating mini-sphinx statue there. Well, you know what, it was actually his wife, Hilda, an Egyptologist by herself, and she should get the credit for it. When she found it, she saw some rather ugly symbols on it, quote-unquote, and she gave it to her husband. He soon saw that one side of the sphinx had hieroglyphics on it, and the other side had 22 different symbols. Guess what those symbols were? That's right, the first known alphabet. The Proto-Sinaiic alphabet. So what is so unique about it? So before the appearance of the alphabet, the only way to document and communicate with a written language was by a highly complex system of thousands of different symbols and combinations that only a few people knew. So you had the Egyptian hieroglyphics, and you had the cuneiform texts in Mesopotamia. If I had to explain it to my 8-year-old nephew, who is super smart by the way, I would tell him, hey… You know that thousands of years ago, people communicated with a series of codes, like you and the other smart dorky kids in your class. Now only a few people are smart, like my eight-year-old nephew. Most people don't understand code language. So what those enslaved people in Serbit el-Khadem did was to take the idea of hieroglyphics and simplify it by creating a picture or a symbol of the first consonant of the word. For example, The letter A comes from the Semitic word aluf, which means a breeding bull. Imagine that the aleph or the A looks like horns of a bull. And later on, this made the word alpha to describe the alpha male. B, or bet, comes from the word describing a house, which is bet. Later on, that alphabet spread throughout the land of Canaan, and about 600 years later, it was spread by a nation of sea merchants called the Phoenicians, who established trade colonies in the Aegean Sea, in Greece, and in Italy, and also later on in history, even in the UK. They met the Greeks, and the Greeks adopted their alphabet. That's why you say Aleph, Bet, Gimel, Daled in the Hebrew alphabet. And in the Greek alphabet, you say Alpha, Beta, Gamla, Delta. Okay, that was interesting, but I got drifted away like the alphabet. So let's go back to Sinai. So for thousands of years, Sinai was a no-man's land. The Egyptians controlled it, but mostly nomadic people were living there with not much of a civilization. All of that changed in the 4th century, with the Roman world turning into Christianity during the Byzantine era. During that time, a few Christian monks settled underneath a mountain they believed to be the place where Moses received the Torah, and they established a monastery there called the Monastery of the Burning Bush. Later on in history, they changed the name to St. Catherine's Monastery, which is, until today, one of the oldest working monasteries in the world and a center for Christian pilgrimage. The first documented traveler who came there was a lady called Igia, and she came there in the year 381 CE, and people wrote about their journeys through Sinai for the centuries to come. In the 19th century, the Sinai Peninsula became important due to the construction of the Suez Canal, a bypass that shortened the old trade path between Europe, India and the Far East. Imagine that before 1867. If one wished to travel by a boat to India from Europe, they would have to sail all around Africa. So, the Suez Canal was a total game changer. And even today, it is responsible for about 1 trillion dollars of annual revenues in trade. Through the 20th century, the British and the Egyptians controlled Sinai until 1967, when Israel conquered the peninsula during the Six-Day War. That is something that left a mark on Sinai until today because the Israelis were the first one in modern history to actually develop Sinai. New roads, infrastructure, airports, and the beginning of tourism as we know it were paved. In 1978, Israel signed its ever first peace treaty with an Arab country, with Egypt, and returned the Sinai to its original owners in 1982. That was a crash course to the history of Sinai. And now, let's go and talk about what there is actually to do and to see in Sinai. So, generally speaking, there are two main types of activities in Sinai. Sea activities and mountain activities. There is only one international airport located at the southern tip in a place called el-Sheikh. This pleasant resort town offers many different types of accommodations and is mainly considered as a family getaway. You can spend your time there, and there are a few interesting activities you can do while you are there. You can go to Ras Muhammad Nature Reserve, which has fantastic scuba diving and snorkeling sites. You can hop on a boat to the White Island, which is a sand dune, and it's nice to spend the afternoon there. You can also take a diving safari boat for a few days all around that area. And you can check out the Ras Um El Sid beach, which also has some nice corals. You can check out the old market and the Sahaba Mosque, which I think looks more like a Disney castle than a mosque, but, you know, that's just me. Anyway, I consider el-Sheikh as a place for a soft landing, and unless you are more into a five-star hotels with water parks and stuff like that, I wouldn't stay there more than one night or two. Now, for the exciting part. So, the exciting part is the eastern coastline alongside the Red Sea, all the way from Sharem Ashech to a place called Taba, which is not far from the border with Israel. The coastline has a few major hotspots where you can find places the Israeli called khusha as a general term, but Westerners will most likely call them guest houses. The local Bedouins are known for their hospitality. Actually, it is a significant part of the Bedouin culture and tradition. They must host you with their highest standards. Now, before I get to the cool places, I should say a word about how to handle things and the Bedouins in general. On your trip, you will encounter most likely people from the three main tribes of southern Sinai, the Mezayne and the Tarabin alongside the coastline, and the Jabalia in the mountains. The Bedouins are generally very friendly and welcoming, but you must understand that not have good intentions. After all, Egypt is a third world country, and the average salary there is about 300 US dollars per month. Sometimes, people will try to overprice you, so you will need to know how to negotiate for a better deal. Sometimes, people will try to scam you. After all, it's the Middle East. Just a pro tip, if you want to buy something, you ask the price, they tell you the price. Usually it will be five times cheaper. Yeah, five times. Okay, back to the coastline. From Sharem Sheikh, driving north, you have a few exciting places to visit. You have the Nabek Nature Reserve, where you have the only true fisherman village left in Sinai, and it looks like it froze in time. What's so interesting about Nabek is that you have the most northern mangroves in the world there, and you you are not allowed to sleep there. I suggest getting there if you only have some extra time and you have a car. From there, you will get to the cool diving town of Dahab. It's a lovely little town with excellent diving spots alongside one of the most famous in the Red Sea, and I can say in the world, the Blue Hole. It's an amazing safari of marine life. There are so many beautiful, colorful fish and corals and stuff. There are plenty of diving clubs around town, and you can rent equipment there and hire their services. There's also a nice promenade with a bunch of restaurants, and all in all, Dahab is a very lovely town. You can take a boat from the Blue Hole and get to one of the most beautiful beaches in Sinai, Rasa Bugalum which offers gorgeous snorkeling and has an awesome place for kite surfing called the Blue Lagoon. They have very minimal accommodation there, but it's totally worth it to spend a night or so. Continuing up north, you have three main areas for these kinds of khusha: Nueba, another small Bedouin town. Then you have Rasa Shatan and Beerswerg. All of them are pretty much the same, and I will write down in the show notes specific places to stay that I know, love, and recommend. The Bedouins would love to offer some day trips to places like the Wash Water Gorge, or hop on a pickup truck to see the sunset from a nearby mountain with some Bedouin tea, fire, and sweets. I always say that time moves very slowly in Sinai until it ends very fast. You can just have a perfect beach vacation, and I would recommend staying in a chusha for four nights or more. However, if you wish to experience the other side of Sinai, the mountains, I would recommend staying for three nights on one of the beaches and going for a three or a four day hike in the mountains. So, are you ready for the mountains? Yalla, let's go. The mountain activities are centered at the high mountain region which is the area of Jabal Musa, or Biblical Mount Sinai, as I mentioned before. In order to get there, you will need to take a taxi and drive for about two hours from Dahab or Nueba until you reach the Bedouin town of St. Catherine. This remote town is situated at the heart of the Holy Mountain Range, and is named after the monastery next to it. Approximately 5,000 Bedouins of the Jabelia tribe live there. Most classical tourism is centered around visiting the monastery and climbing up to the top of Mount Sinai, usually to see the sunrise or sunset from there. Most of the tourists who come here come for religious reasons. You can meet groups of Christian pilgrims from Romania and groups of Muslim pilgrims from Indonesia. To climb the mountain and, in general, to travel around the mountains, it is necessary to hire the services of a local guide who in the local language is called Dalil. Many such guides will offer you their services right at the entrance to the monastery. By the way, it is possible to visit the monastery, and I would definitely recommend it. It is open every morning except Sundays. In the monastery you can see the holy bush, what Christians believe was the burning bush from the biblical story of Moses, the well of Zipporah, where Moses met his future wife and drove away the evil shepherds, there is a small museum there that displays sacred exhibits from the long history of the monastery, and this is the classic part of the high mountain tourism. The worthwhile part of the trip to the high mountain region is to go for a few days' hike around the mountains, accompanied by a dalil and a camelier, a Bedouin who carries your equipment on the back of a camel while you walk with a daypack in the mountains. This is one of the most unique experiences I've had in my life. Fortunately, I had the chance to develop relationships with the Bedouins in the mountains, who are very special people. According to the tradition, the Jabalia tribe was a group of warriors sent from Wallachia in Romania by the Byzantine emperor Justinian I at the request of the monks from the monastery of St. Catherine. Those warriors stayed and converted to Islam over the years, and were giving the exclusive right to lead pilgrims around the holy mountain and take care of the monastery's needs. Just a funny story, one time when I was traveling there, we sat down around the bonfire and our Dalil, Ibrahim, asked me, Motek, where is your family originally from? And I told him, from Romania. And he said, you know something? Mine's too! <laughs> <laughs> there are two travel agencies that organize trips there. And they will be happy to help you with everything you need. The first is Sheikh Musa, a local and familiar Sheikh, and the second is Faraj from Fox Camp. I personally prefer Faraj, but the services of both are pretty much the same. Walking in the mountains is challenging and intended for experienced hikers. It is possible to hike there all year round, though it can be very cold there during the night in the winter and early springtime. Usually, We walk a lot during the day, and in the evening we arrive at one of the many Bedouin orchards where we sleep in what I like to call the 5000 star hotel. That is, under the sky and the many fruit trees. We eat together with the Bedouins around the bonfire, tell stories, and go to sleep. I recommend the classic circular route in the high mountains, which is about 5 days long. There are other areas a little further from the high mountains for even more challenging hikes, like the Serabil Mountain or Umel Shumar Mountain, but I think this is good for now. So, guys, if you like this episode, I would really appreciate it if you wrote to me. After all, this is my first solo episode, and I would love to hear from you if you would like to hear about other crazy places around the world that are worth getting to know. I'm on all social media under the username The Traveling Podcast and the best way to help me is to share this podcast with more people by giving it a 5-star review and sharing it with your friends. I am Motek and always remember that the most important thing is to keep on traveling. See you in the next episode. Buya.